0: .NET ROCKS Episode 899 with guest Bob Yuva. Recorded live Thursday, August 8th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklin's.NET, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers details at gesturepak.com and by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone
1: and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard Thank you very much. Welcome back to DotNet Rocks, Carl and Richard, and we're here again as we are, you know, twice a week. And- Dude, it's show
0: 899. We're about to hit the 900th episode. It must be a, a real job or something. We're up to something. I don't know what, but we're something.
1: Well, you know, I forget. I, people ask me what I do, and I say, you know, I'm a podcast guy, and I start as a developer and stuff. But I don't often stop and think, man, we were one of the first... Podcasts, not w- just uh, tech podcasts, but... podcast. Like, period. We were putting out shows in 2002 before podcasts was a thing.
0: Yeah, before RSS was a thing.
1: Yeah, and I remember it was just a matter of me uh, writing an RSS, uh, uh, you know, spitter router, if you will, an RSS adapter for is the web. Is that a technical term? Spitter router? Yeah, spitter router, an adapter for the web to um, to dynamically create the RSS feeds, and then the rest is history.
0: Well, and I love that our ninth episode is going to be a geek out selected by the attendees of that conference. Yeah, it's going to be fun. That's a lot, really, really cool. So that'll be good fun.
1: I have something geeky and fun and instrumental to share today. All right. So on Better No Play Framework. Play that funny music, white
0: boy. Okay, what do you got?
1: All right. So I went looking on a Code Project. You know, the code, codeproject.com. It's uh, before there was... Code Zone and Codeplex and Code Share and all this stuff. There was the Code Project. And yeah. Lots and lots of projects there. But I went looking for five star projects. Okay. You know, something that somebody wrote that there's got a lot of votes and uh, five stars. So check it out. Go to tinyurl.com slash avionic controls. That's A-V I O N I C. Avionic controls. These are Avionic instrument controls, graphical controls that you would see in an airplane cockpit. Oh, cool. Five stars and uh, 7,000 downloads, something like that. 2008. So we're talking, you know, WPF. I think it's WPF. It looks like it's WPF, but it could be GDI. I'm not sure. Could be GDI well anyway um this is cool because not only is it you know if you're doing a flight simulator or you're instrumenting stuff uh, it's also cool because there's a generic instrument class so you can design any kind of dashboard instrument from the base classes nice yeah it's really cool and and if you scroll down you'll see a lot more math than you probably care to <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have controls. That's why we have controls, but also really good uh, comments as well. So there That's you go. Neat. So not just for flight simulators anymore. tinyurl.com slash controls. So,
0: Richard, who's talking to us? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 883, and that's the one we did with Jez Humble when we were at NDC. We're talking about continuous delivery. And this comment comes from Dimitri, who says, uh, Hi, guys. Great show, as always. And Jez rocks. I love his sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I'd like to touch upon a topic you mentioned in the beginning of the show. I would agree that Windows developers mostly get involved with Interop services, because this was your your uh, Better Know Framework where you talked about Interop. Right. But there are cases, believe me, when a web application would be crying for help. In one of the projects I'm involved in, I made use of the Microsoft.Office.Interop.Excel. Oh, no. (laughs) To manipulate a very, very large Excel report. Mm. Yes, I know you will say that there are other products to do this with, but... Having to deal with this, I can assure you that most of them get coughed up when you try to export or combine or merge Excel files with millions of rows. Oh man. Nevertheless, just like in the Windows app, you have to call get ready for this because you know this one well, Mr. Franklin. Interrupt services.marshall.release com object. That's but right. But unfortunately, it does not always happen fast enough. And in many cases, when the next process comes to grab the Excel com object, errors are thrown due to it being inaccessible the only thing to help is gc.collect yes indeed gc.collect called by hold on to your hats folks (laughs) my web application oh no can you imagine how wrong this is It's
1: so wrong you know i i actually was involved in a project that ended up doing something like that uh you know back in the days of apartment threading and it wasn't uh gccollect but it was Bad. You know, trying to trying to access those objects on the web is just not a good idea. Not a good idea. What you need is some sort of uh marshalling across machines, not just processes. Yeah. You need to separate that stuff.
0: But you gotta know the sad though, I think what's upsetting Dimitri the most in this is that it works. Yeah. Like that, that actually solves the problem and makes it work and he's sad about that. Mm. I wouldn't want to scale it. You know? I yeah. really wouldn't. But you know, it's long- a good,
1: uh, good uh, call for a service bus right there.
0: We get it off onto a different instance, but yep. you know, the main thing is—is is there a better way to get into that Excel file and pull the data the way you want to? Yeah. Do you remember there was an ODBC driver for Excel? I
1: do. Yeah.
0: I'm not saying that that's a good idea, <laughs> but I remember it.
1: Oh, how about export that SQL Server? <laughs> what are you doing? Stop. <laughs>
0: you know, I dealt with a customer who happens to be a major accounting firm in the world, and I will not mention their name, that their whole business ran on Excel spreadsheets. And so, you know, you couldn't get it all converted to a database. They were accountants. They worked in Excel, and we had to extract data from it. And so managing that was just a huge deal. Oh, man. But it gave me a laugh. And uh, and Dimitri, dude, feel, totally feel the pain. Totally feel it. And uh, yeah, damn shame that works for you, sir. So, uh, you know, to ease your agony, I will send you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET or on any of our mobile apps. We've got mobile apps for Windows Phone, for Windows 8, for iOS, and for Android. You can download those, and the comments engine's right there. It all works the same. The uh, shows synchronize between your different devices, so if you're listening on your phone and then you switch to your tablet, it'll be in the same place where you left off. Oh, yeah. Those cool apps were built by Diatom Enterprises, and they'd love to build you an app. Go to DiatomEnterprises.com.
1: And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs, industry experts. They release uh, around 40 new courses every month now and offer a 10-day trial for free, giving you 200 minutes of access. Wide range of topics, iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And now they have IT stuff, too.
0: Yeah, so yeah. We saw that announcement that they acquired Train Signal, which was almost as big as Pluralsight, but all IT-oriented content, yeah. so a massive increase in the library. Yeah.
1: So, for the those of you who are Richard-like and wear two hats, and let's face it, all of us are that way to some extent. To some extent, yeah. without a doubt. Good stuff. All right. Very exciting. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Bob Yuva is a senior engineer on the .NET Windows agent team at New Relic. He joined New Relic in early 2012. A software industry veteran, Bob started his career in the Boston area where he grew up. He's the original designer and developer of SQA Robot, which still lives today as Rational Robot. He resides in Portland, Oregon, which is home base for New Relic's engineering organization. And besides providing .NET developers with awesome tools for monitoring their production systems, he is active as a coach and mentor to kids learning how to code. Awesome welcome bob thanks hi guys so you've been around a while doing uh uh in in boston working a rational and all of that stuff now were you actually working for rational or were you just uh develop you just developed sqa robot
2: well uh yeah i did work for rational when they acquired sqa Mm -hmm. uh, which was sort of right before i left there um but uh, I was kind of the first engineer hired by SQA back in, geez, what was it, 1990, 91? Yeah. So, uh, you know, our, we were trying to break new ground, kind of like New Relic has been, in the sense of uh, introducing automated testing tools for Windows, back in the good old Windows 3.1 days.
1: All right. So tell us, tell us about these uh, instrumentation tools that uh, New Relic okay. has. And, and we should mention right up, right up front that uh, there's a free offering. Yeah. And uh, that's why we decided to do a show
2: with you. Okay, great. Um, you know, I thought maybe uh, uh, as one way to kind of introduce the, the tools was to kind of give you a little idea of what New Relic's all about and kind sure. of what our uh, vision and mission is. And, you know, I'm a developer, so um, those developers out there don't have to worry about it sounding too marketing-like, but I'll try to give you some good uh, insight into sort of where we're going. So uh, I think our CEO Lou Cerny, kind of said it pretty well when he said that you know the financial industry is uh, very mature and you wouldn't go out and invest in a company unless you had a lot of data on them, something about how their performance was. So nowadays, um, it's I think Mark Andreessen was was right when he said you know software is eating bus- eating um, the world and every business is in a sense a software company. So. Uh, what we're doing is as a software sort of analytics company we're providing information about the business through providing information about the software that's running everybody's businesses right so um, we we're, uh, we're of course um, you know uh, sort of top he- best of breed in um, the uh, APM or application performance monitoring area um, and that's where our bread and butter is and there's there's a couple of things about that that are really important to us uh, one is that we want it to be an experience for we know that the developers are the ones who really need to see performance um uh results in their production environments um a lot of times you know in the in sort of the pre uh pre-nurelic world you might get um IT, tightly controlling uh, production environment. And, you know, if there's a, a crash or if there's a CPU spike or whatever, the information would eventually dribble down to development and they might have to spin up some sort of reproducible case, yeah. uh, maybe, you know, basically be in a reactive mode. So what we're trying to do is uh, provide to developers the application level, transaction detail level information for the applications running in production in real time,
0: essentially. I mean, the reality is for an awful lot of folks, you only find out your app's in problem
2: when somebody calls to complain. Right, right. And, you know, when that happens, uh, you know, it's, it's a very much a reactive mode. So, uh, you know, we have customers who, uh, in fact, I hear this all the time, you know, people say, well... You know, once I installed New Relic, it was just the lights went on. And it was like, this is, you know, somebody tweeted just, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, it's like I have a new sense organ, something that's giving me information that I didn't have before.
1: So what you, you mentioned that uh, not just looking at the performance of your app and thinking about it in that way, but also looking at business value. You know, getting business value out of it. I mean, that's sort of a, 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 not that much of a stretch, but you know, I I can understand that uh, that that comment. Mm-hmm. But tell us exactly what you mean by that.
2: So, um, and I guess an example would be: let's say you you're developing, uh, you've got a site that's running, and let's say you're building uh, mobile applications, for instance, and um, you know you've got. A lot of mobile clients out there who are trying to hit your site. Um, There are going to be times when there's going to be some spikes. There might even be performance, you know, when when somebody's on a mobile phone, for instance, they they don't have that much time before they're gonna say, forget it. This thing is taking too long to load, I'm moving on. Um, If you're developing mobile apps or if mobile applications are a significant part of your business, then you're gonna wanna care about when that's happening, and not be totally surprised that later on, you know, you see um, people aren't doing in-app purchases; they're not using the app as much, mm-hmm. and you're kind of, and you're kind of left in the dark about why that is. Yeah. So by having sort of real-time analytics, and what we try to do is just basically, um, you know, we collect. Uh, it's it's a ridiculous amount of metrics, like 144 billion metrics per day sure. that we're taking in right now. Uh, but you know that's an overwhelming amount of data. What we do with that is we aggregate and synthesize out what makes sense, and then we put up you know HTTP response time, average response time, how much time's in request queuing, how much time's in the database, so that you can actually look at that in real time and see where the trends are, see where the CPU spikes or the or there's a slow SQL query, that sort of thing. Thing. Yeah. and that really is tied to ultimately to how well your business is doing um, since so sure. much so many businesses these days are running software sure
0: so how do you go about instrumenting an app like what's what's the approach that new relic takes to, to stick it into my app
2: okay yeah so um because i work on the on uh, the .NET agent team and we have several agents in uh, that we actually uh, develop. One is a Python agent, one for Ruby, which was actually our first, one for Java. Uh, we had a Node agent in the works, um, PHP. Um, and each one of the agents uh, injects in a slightly different way. Um, the .NET agent, for instance, we use bytecode injection. So it's kind of like weaving in our code into selected Methods that we're going to instrument, uh, and the way we do that is um, we, uh, you know, we have actually a list of predefined list of entry points that we want to instrument, and they're most most of them are in somewhere in the .NET framework. Some of them are in um, third-party database provider libraries, like for MySQL or Oracle or even SQL Server. Right. So, so, am I just essentially
0: just adding a, a, a DLL to my app and then compiling it?
2: Well, actually, you're not. So, um, the another sort of tenet of, uh, of the company is that we want it to be uh, seamless, and we want it to be a very quick install. So, what a new user would do, for instance, is they download a piece of software called an agent, uh, they install it, and immediately... Once a minute, it is actually reporting metrics on your application to our SAS servers. And the way it does that is through runtime instrumentation. So we actually, um, uh, intercept the JIT compilation process and we and prior to a, you know, a method, a class and a method being, um, JIT compiled, if it's one that we care about, then we're going to inject our basically preamble in, um, you know, uh, f- uh, finish tracer essentially uh, in there so that we can capture how much time it takes in those, in that particular method as well as get some sort of context information as to whether we're in a web transaction or not. It
1: sounds a lot like what Preemptive does.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it actually probably is very similar in some ways. Um, I think Preemptive is more build time, but um, uh, but yeah, other, you know, there's there's a number of different ways to instrument code and uh, this actually works really well for us. We're able to get it to work in a lot of different environments, um, add add new features fairly easily. Uh, so, because you guys aren't really, you didn't start out in the .NET world, right? You you've come to .NET relatively recently. Well, yeah, that's that's true. Not that recently, uh, but. We started out with Ruby on Rails. That was uh, uh, the, our, in fact, our dashboard, our SaaS dashboard is based on, is written in Ruby on Rails. It also has some Java components. Um, after the Ruby agent was released, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think the Java agent may have come next, and or and then, um, and then the .NET agent came after that. Okay, so
0: it has been a progression.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think the it was, the .NET agent was released in uh, 2011, and uh, so you know since then we've we've done quite a bit to it. We've built NuGet packages to support Azure. Um, we've you know we've added a Windows Server monitor, which is a free product um, that basically is like a more of a traditional server based monitor. which gives CPU, uh, network I/O. Uh, memory that sort of um, those sort of metrics but it's all tied into our SAS dashboard so you don't have to sort of go somewhere else to get those get those results
0: and I guess this gets down to the biggest part about actually running these things is where does
2: the data go and how do you manage it mm-hmm yeah in fact like I said we have 144 billion metrics so it it's a lot of data we actually each agent like I said just collects data once a minute, we aggregate it, and some information we don't aggregate. So for instance, um, we we allow you to set, and we have a, a default for this, but we allow you to set what you would consider a slow transaction. Um, so if a page is, or a transaction takes more than a half a second, it could be considered slow. And at that point, we're going to retrieve a full stack trace, basically we call it a transaction trace. Mm-hmm. And we'll store that information. So. Other than that type of thing and other than error information, so if there's exceptions, we capture those. Everything else is aggregated, and then we ship that off to our servers once a minute. Okay. And I guess the you know, concern here is,
0: what's the overhead of having that capability?
2: You know, that's a good question because, that's uh, Richard, everybody asks that. And um, the overhead for uh, what we're doing is actually very small. I mean, for one thing, um, we do... Instrument test a select number of methods. If in, although we support custom instrumentation, and you could in theory add instrumentation for hundreds of methods, hundreds of additional methods, and sure. that could potentially slow things down, but because of what we okay. instrument, um, the performance is typically you know a few percent, um, and uh, in the. In the scope of a, of a whole sort of web, you know, multi-tier application, the performance impact is very, very small. And you don't really notice that, um, in the dashboard. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really not noticeable. The key thing is for that little bit of performance hit, we're able to give you, um, basically targeted, as we used to say, x-ray vision into what your application is, is doing and it, at and that time. It sounds like it's really aimed at web apps. Like this is about public-facing web apps uh and that was our that is our um kind of primary focus um and our initial focus but since then uh, earlier this year we released uh mobile monitors so we also m- monitor the uh the um, performance on the on ios and on uh, android phones oh, okay so you've got we can we can monitor mobile devices as well that's right. And um, another thing that we did, this is another big game changer for us. Uh, uh, just a couple of months ago, we released uh, the, the New Relic platform. And the platform is basically a an API protocol f- so that you can write plugins. And right away, within about a month, we had a 40 or 60-some plugins um, for MySQL, which is probably the most popular, but also SQL Server, SQL Azure, um, NGINX, um f5 load balancers you name it so uh, the i the idea behind that is that um you could monitor anything or as we say that's pretty cool because you know as
0: a guy who's in a lot of web performance stuff like once you set f5 now you've got my attention because actually being able to capture the time from it hitting the outer edge of the firewall all the way through to the database and back again has been this bane of my existence. I can instrument Mm -hmm. web servers, I can instrument databases, but trying to, and I can instrument network devices, but getting those things
2: to coordinate and actually see the data as a whole, that's a bear. Mm -hmm. I know what you mean. And uh, that, in fact, this is why we did it because our language agents are intended to give you um the vision into your application itself. And in in some, you know, we actually do cross application tracing. So you can see one application calling another and so on. But the whole other piece of this is there's a lot of things going on in a lot of other parts of, a lot of other infrastructure. And we wanted to give visibility into that. Yeah, just
0: to actually see the whole thing end to end. It's it's harder than you think. There's a lot of ends. Mm. All right. So I... Add this agent to my app, and uh, I guess I need to have some kind of account or something. Where does the data go?
2: So, um, first of all, when you say you add it to your app, um, you basically run an installer if you're in Windows, basically, and it just installs and it gets injected into any process where the do- where the CLR is loaded. So, you don't have to write any code to do that. Okay. That's good. But so once you've done that, um, the data we collect data on a separate thread. We cache it, like I said, once a minute, and we aggregate information um, in the agent. So it's in process inside of your W three W P process, for instance, um, and then once a minute on a set, on a background thread, we send that up to our uh, collector. So we one of the things that's really important about what we do because we're running in production, and this is you I guess Google says do no evil we say do no harm um, on <laughs> the agent teams so Hippocratic it's, it's all about yeah, yeah it's all you know we're in your process so um, we don't want to crash we don't want to slow you down you know in anything, anything significant we don't want to have an impact we just want to be there And, I mean, it would be great if we could say, oh, you know, we could do that entirely outside and not have to touch a wrap. But it's a lot more difficult to get everything that we want to get if you're not actually in process.
0: Yeah, but it's still scary because you are going to
2: take the blame when I crash. Um, Well, that's. That's somewhat true. If 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 you crash and we're in process, what you should get is uh, an exception that was also generated. Right. So, um, assuming that you know we catch that, um, assuming that's caught and the process isn't completely shut down, then we're going to send that, and you can see your errors and where you know how often they happen, and and uh, all collated essentially on our on our dashboard. Right. So, yeah, which is kind of nice. I may have crashed,
0: but you've at least told me why I crashed and where I crashed. Right. Mm -hmm.
2: Still, this data goes to New Relic? Yes. So uh, we ship it up to what we call our collector. And we have a number of different, obviously, collectors all behind our firewall. And um, we store those in sharded MySQL databases. Mm -hmm. And um, then uh, we also have data that's actually coming from you're our customers' customers. So you've got a website and you've got 500,000 people hitting it or whoever. Each one of those clients is going has a very small amount of JavaScript code that we've injected into the page. And with that, we actually collect information about page rendering versus DOM processing time on the client. And are you savvy to the type of browser, like, you know what data
0: you can collect for each one? I'm thinking there's, you know, in HTML5, we have the timers class that pulls all kinds of really detailed information, but no two browsers implement it the same.
2: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I don't actually work on that team, so I can't speak for sure. But, yes, they know they know the browsers extremely well. So um, uh, I know that it does work with, with multiple different browsers, so I wouldn't be surprised that we handle that. Yeah, it's a, it's one, yet another one of those. I've rolled my own on that stuff, and it's a pain. Right, right. Um, so anyway, the data gets up to uh, our collector, and actually, we we send the client side data from the from the uh, your customers to our another type of collector. We call it a beacon, and then all that data is collated in our databases, and then we have our uh, dashboard, which is our. Um, you know, UI. Um, that whole process or or set of processes reads the data in an efficient way and display and visualizes it for you.
0: Yeah, I think visualization is an interesting problem. Like, well, how do I show useful information? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that really yeah. look like?
2: Yeah. So. Um, that's, that's actually a good point. And, you know, I thought uh, it kind of leads me to an interesting story, but, which I can get to. But the, the simple answer is that we, uh, we've identified what we think uh, you might want to look at. For instance, on the browser side, we break it up using a – we have a timeline capability. Mm-hmm. So you can look at, let's say, the last 30 minutes by default or the last 60 minutes or the last three days or, you know, it's customizable. But in that period of time, you'll see uh, a graph that'll show you, let's say, how much time is spent on the client between um, re- between uh page rendering or DOM processing, or how much time is on the network, say. And then for the so that'd be kind of your client side. Then on the server side, where we're instrumenting your server, we'll show how much time is in request queuing, where your your application has basically maxed out in terms of the number of requests that it can handle. So the time in the request queue goes up. Um, So we'd we'd show that. Uh, We'll show how much time is actually being handled by the database. So because we instrument um, data providers, we know how much time you're actually spending trying to spin up on SQL queries. Awesome. Hey,
1: Richard, guess what time it is?
2: Uh, It must be that happy time again.
1: That's right. It's time to inject a little JavaScript so I can optimize my load times. Nice. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about.
0: It's all the way in the way you say load there that load makes this times. inappropriate.
1: Yeah, well, no, it's really time to give away a Telerik Craft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. Before I tell you who it is, let's talk about Telerik's agile project management solution, Team Pulse. Awesome. Team Pulse comes with a rich set of features for data intelligence, capturing of stakeholder feedback, and complete tracking of work items. Team Pulse can be easily added on top of any TFS environment, including TFS versions 2008, 2010, and 2012. The tool even comes with a TFS wizard that will allow non-techie people to set up the whole thing in seconds. If you want to improve the way you work, try Telerik Team Pulse now at bit.ly slash team pulse for TFS. Cool. Who's our winner, buddy? The winner of the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection today is Stefan Lundqvist. Woo-hoo. Golf clap for you, so Stefan. There you go. So he wins uh, the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything Telerik does in one box. And uh we like to give away a franklin brothers cd in the middle of the show too this is lifeboat to nowhere if you're a fan of classic rock steely dan billy joel eagles and all of that stuff with even a little southern rock flavor in there a little bit uh you'll like this cd our winner today pat piccolo congratulations pat pat piccolo will be sending that to you and if you don't know what we're talking about go to click on the big get free stuff button join the fan club. It only takes a few minutes, and we have thousands of members. Every show we give away stuff, and every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of that fan club. And we like to ask our guests, Bob, if you had five grand right now to drop on technology, what would you buy?
2: Well, I was at the last build conference, and <laughs> I know you guys have heard this. Uh, at probably a few times is it's got to be a 3D printer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those things are awesome. And uh, what I would really love to do with it besides um, sort of see if I, see if I was wrong about whether I had any artistic capability, which I, I don't, but, um, but I'd love to sort of bring that to, um, uh, to one of the sessions with uh, some of the middle school kids I've been working with just to kind of get them to explore how cool Programming is beyond just being able to build like you know games and websites which is cool enough for them but when they start seeing uh, how we can build uh, how we can th- build things with 3D that would be pretty cool it is pretty cool We were just talking about this about
1: uh, the little app that lets you take a picture with your iPhone of your key you know keys mm. to your house or whatever and then if you lose it you can just drop off the plans at any locksmith and they will build you a new one which is is it's
0: absolutely awesome. amazing. Yeah. I actually the one of the local high schools here near me has a 3D printer that they, and they have a class around using it. I just cool. you, you know it, it, it is an interesting truth that the younger generation is just not that interested in computing. Uh, and I think the part of it is that, that they've always had it. It's, it's as exciting to, computing is as exciting to them as refrigerators mm-hmm. are to us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're from right. a different generation. We, we are the immigrants. We remember a time before computing. Right. And yeah. they are the natives. They don't. And it, cause I remember mm-hmm. my grandmother who did live without a refrigerator when she was a kid. Yeah. She used to freak out when I opened the fridge. Hmm. You know, because she was an immigrant to refrigeration, and it was always a big deal to her. Right, and it's yeah. just and and so these kids are just not that interesting until you get into something like three D printing, which is very new and does take a certain amount of computing skills to to use effectively.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, um, we could we could totally get off on uh, a tangent here, but I'm wh- I'm really uh, passionate about how um, how to bring. Uh, programming and computational thinking and that sort of thing to kids mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that really I had a thought the other day that one of the things that really is exciting about it is the fact that you are much more than a programmer you are uh, it, it, whether when you're building something out you're a philosopher in a way and that you're looking at different ways of um, maybe it's different patterns or different ways of building something and part of that philosophy part of it's architecture mm-hmm. um, There's so much communication capability that kids uh, can learn from when they start working as a team. Uh, There's so many really great things that, that, you know, the technology is just, it's kind of, I forget what they called that in the Hitchcock movies, but the, um, um, you know, it's the thing and it's really cool. But there's Mm -hmm. so much about who they are as a person that they learn when they start working on a project. Right.
0: Yeah, maybe we're making a terrible mistake talking about the programming side of being a software developer.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because, um, like with the kids I work with, um, uh, I work in, we have a program in Oregon where we teach game programming. Mm -hmm. um, And it's a competition. And I've been working with, uh, my team is uh, five girls, all middle school. And, you know, you got the one thing where you know the the whole barrier about oh you know you know people say um, you know guys are only really interested in programming but that the, these the girls are really uh, excited about working together as a team and building something yeah and you know the project oriented aspect of it is uh, I'd say at least as important to them in terms of success as the actual programming so I've had a ball doing that anyway but.
0: I, one time I did a uh, uh, real fast film festival, 48 hours to make a five-minute film. Yeah. And, uh, mm. you know, the whole reason I wanted to do it was let's see how a team of 10 makes a movie under that much pressure. Like, yeah, I'm with you. The team side of things is its own fascination. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, yeah. it's just interesting that middle school girls would focus on that because mo- my general experience with middle school girls, and I've had a couple of them living in my house, they're <laughs> mean. Yeah, well, the hormones are lighting
2: up, and they get pretty nasty with each other. (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, I started with them in the when they were in the sixth grade, which was last year, and um, this year uh, it was definitely more of a um, social awareness than there was last year. Right. But uh, but yeah, but to see them cooperate, um, it's just been impressive. They've they've really impressed me. They've won a technical award both years in this competition. So. And I I saw a Ted talk a while ago
0: that was talking about that the point at which you're really going to influence a career of someone is like ages 10 to 12. Like that's the time where those there's experiences that happen then that later on when you're making decisions about what you want to do, there are Mm -hmm. really influential. And he talked about, you know, these sort of weird truths like all of the... May, I think it was Burt Rutan that was talking about this. All of the major figures in aeronautical engineering were all about the same age. And it turned in that they were between 10 and 12 at the end of World War one, when all the barnstormers came home and airplanes were everywhere. Right. And all of the major computing people in the world, uh, the Bill Gates and Larry Ellison and, and, uh, uh, Steve Jobs, all these guys about the same age. And so clearly there was an influential moment in their lives that they were all affected by that drove them into computing in one degree or another. I just think it's interesting for us to think in terms of how do we uh, present these opportunities at that age range? Mm -hmm. Well, and you're clearly doing it working with these girls, but what sort of things are they
2: building? Well, uh, they're building basically uh, computer uh, video games. So. uh, these first two years that I've done it, we've used something called Game Maker, which is, um, a kind of IDE for building games. And it's, it's a drag and drop thing where you, 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 uh, define, uh, you build objects and sprites, you attach sprites to objects, and then you, um, you define an action, you define drag and drop actions, uh, onto events. And then they can go behind that to the to the source code, which is, is actually kind of cryptic, but it but it works. And so they learned a little bit about actual programming. Are you talking about Kodu? Uh, no, it's called uh, Game Maker. It's from Yo-Yo Games. Oh, that's very cool. I, I played this Kodu game
1: with my daughter. I don't know if you know that one. It's from Microsoft yeah. Research.
2: It's very similar. Yeah, it's very it.
1: drag and drop, and you, you have little... Uh, graphical logic directions, you know, when this event happens, do that. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. That's, that's the idea. And I think that um, the good thing about it was they were able to start getting some computational skills and having to figure out things like um, uh, collisions and uh, screen resolutions, stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, not be stuck trying to figure out, you know, the very – bare bones how do i even draw a circle or something um and so they were able to get up to speed fairly quick right. and finish a project in a you know eight weeks or so yeah
0: well yeah it's uh, building video games almost seen it seems so cliche that that's always been the thing um because modern and modern video game building isn't a lot of fun anymore either. You look at the like modern warfare and uh, the sports related games, like those big title games, huge teams of people, and the games just aren't that creative. the f- The cool games these days are on the phone. Mm.
2: As a matter of fact, one of um one of the kids uh, during a school vacation, I think she was enrolled in a program to build iPhone games. So she kind of did that a little bit and got a little sense of that but i I kind of agree with you. I think there's game building is awesome, and it's a great way to get kids into it because a lot of them obviously play games, but there are other things three d printing or mm-hmm. um uh other types of social uh, applications that are also going to be very attractive to them so yeah more more compelling
0: models and i I do think it's a right. good use of our time. As experienced people in the industry, they'd be going into the schools and, and just showing them what's possible. Agreed.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. we We've got a little derailed there. I do a want bit. to get back to the subject at hand, uh, okay. talk about instrumenting applications, because I see that there's really two. Uh, there's a few aspects here that interest me. One is method profiling in production, just knowing what I should tune because it's the slowest thing in the equation. Mm-hmm. So this do I not have to specify methods that just sort of figures out which ones I want how is that even
2: possible So so what what we do is we we basically like I said we we identify some places in the .net framework where uh we know something's going to happen or in you know, some places we we actually have our own HTTP module that that knows when a begin request starts Right But um let's say after You know, once your code's running, and we determine, and and let's say it's making a SQL call, and something takes a long time, or and it doesn't even have to be a database. Although you know, it seems like ninety-nine percent of the cases are there's a database uh, involved in in the in the performance issue. Usually, but yeah, but if it's something else, it it might be something that's just spinning. Uh, Maybe there is an N plus one on uh, some other type of issue. once you once you've crossed the threshold of what we call the you know the the, the transaction trace threshold of uh, 500 milliseconds or whatever it is then we're going to take that stack trace so we can actually read what the full stack is and then package that up so that you know when the minute harvesting cycle occurs uh, harvesting point occurs we'll We'll pack that up and send it to the server. so then you'll be able to see, oh, at this point there was the relic is telling me that there was a slow transaction. So you can then click on that essentially and then go to a full stack trace with the time it took and you know which parts of that particular stack trace um, was slow or took more time than other parts. And that just sort of helps us hone in on if
0: you're going to do some performance tuning, that's where you should go. Exactly. Like I I can't tell you how many times in the battle of making web pages faster, we've just blamed the database and yelled at the DBA guy and gone home. Yeah. But it'd be nice, and I'm actually looking at some of the visualizations where you actually see that, okay, the total page time was five seconds. It's in the scroll, and you can see the piece of that that was
2: in the database Mm -hmm. and the pieces that weren't. Mm -hmm. So So I was talking to somebody the other day who had a... A case where um, uh, she, she, they had a, a server. They were using the .NET agent, and actually before they were using New Relic, they, they would have these servers that would every once in a while uh, go down um, because, or they would have to recycle because it would, the CPU would spike. Right, and uh, this was actually in using link to SQL, so there was kind of pre um, uh, Entity Framework a little bit, and. And they couldn't figure out what would happen, and sometimes it would be two or three times a day, and it was really frustrating. They installed our product and they start they looked at uh, the slow transactions and it was immediately obvious that it was the init method in linked to SQL that was generating over and over again tons and tons of objects and it would eventually kick over the garbage collector so or it would kick in to garbage collecting and then that's when CPU was biking so they immediately mm-hmm. saw that. They went to that method and they said, okay, what are we doing here? And, you know, they put some stuff in cache. They rewrote some things as stored procedures and they solved the problem. Right, um, But so, it all starts with actually
0: seeing what the real issue is, having
2: that visualization. Exactly. And if it's in production, you know, you're reacting to that unless you have something that is showing you that on a regular basis. But I also say this, I've, I've run into this again and again, bloody hard to recreate
0: outside of production. Yes Like oh. I'm creating load tests And I'm just not
2: getting the same behaviors Yeah And when you, you try to create load tests And usually that takes sometimes weeks Because you got somebody who's You know Working at something And they're building up tests And they're guessing And after a while If you're guessing at that stuff so much You, you get just confusion You're just like throwing anything in To see see if you can spike it But you yeah. have no idea If you're affecting the same pro- same problem or not Yeah you create,
0: and you end up just chasing around. So I think, I'm think i a big believer in instrument and production, just always afraid of the impact of it. Talk mm-hmm. to me about the thread profiler.
2: Okay. Um, so thread profiling um, is the, uh, so I'll, I'll explain how it works first. So a customer is looking at the dashboard and they say, hmm, there there is some, um, there's something going on. The server seems to, they, they can't look at other, it's specific web transactions, but they they want to see uh, what, what else is causing maybe a, a general slowdown of their system. So they can turn on a thread profile, which basically sends a signal to the agent, whether it's the Ruby, .NET, whatever agent, um, to turn on profiling. And then thread profile basically... Is a statistical profiler. So what it'll do is every hundred milliseconds, um, it will take a snapshot of all the threads in that process, all the, st- the stack trace of all those threads, and aggregate all that information, and then send that up with call counts to um, to our collector. And then what we do on the UI side is we then display a profile tree um, of all that aggregated information. So you might see you know, your main program, whatever, is taking 100%, and some s- method that it calls is taking 100%, and then something it calls is taking 90%, and some other method is taking the other 10%, and that sort of right. thing. So it kind of gives you a, a another view of what's happening across threads um Across all of your threads in that process,
0: and it's just one of those things where, generally speaking, what
2: web servers run out of is threads under load. Uh, yep, they could be running out of threads, so you'd see that. In fact, well, we we actually report the number of threads. Sure, especially those web servers that like to keep uh, keep alive open
1: for long, you know, file uploads and downloads and things like that.
0: Right, yeah. And, yeah, just that whole, that whole constraint, and, you know, then saying, well, why are these threads long-running? Like, what's holding us up there? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, the visualization is an important piece of this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, error handling. Yes. So, we, we right now we're just talking about apps that are working, but when an error occurs that actually creates, you know, barfs an error back to the user... What do you do? What does
2: you relic do to pick that up and handle it? So um, this is it, it, there's interesting story associated with kind of error handling, which I'll, I can get to later. But the uh, about some of its origins. But uh, what we do is we look for anytime there's an exception that we can catch at the low level, then we're going to grab that, grab the stack trace of that exception, um, exception object, basically, and then. Uh, if we're in a web transaction, which normally we are, then we'll associate that with the web transaction and then send that um, information up to the collector as part of our harvest. Um, then you can actually, as I think you've probably seen, you can go to the right on our uh, the main page, our main monitoring page. You can see the an errors graph down toward the bottom, and if you click on the on that or on its. Uh, on its caption, you can get more detail on each of the specific errors, and um, uh, you know, basically, look at the stack trace for each of those errors. Um, the reason we did that, by the way, not I shouldn't say the reason we did, but one of the things that happened was um, uh, back in the early days uh, of New Relic. Um, so, um, Wood Cunningham um, is uh, who now works at New Relic. Um, he he was an early customer at another company uh, of New Relic's, and um, and at one point they were having a whole lot of uh, they were getting you know a lot of traffic and they were having a lot of errors re- being reported in their log files and these these errors were really piling up and. You know, the only thing they had was their log files to kind of go through and figure out which errors they were. So he wrote a Perl script and and combined all the errors into different categories and um, uh, and then they were able to prioritize tri- prioritize them and figure out which ones they wanted to work on um, in that order. Well, at one point he was showing this um, this process that he was using to the Neuralink guys and in, in back in it was probably two thousand eight or nine, um, and. Uh, within a month after that um, we actually kind of probably had it <laughs> on our uh, backlog but within a month of that we had trace transaction errors uh, in the product. So he was able to instead of having to worry about going to log files he was able to see it in the product. Um, and the errors that we're reading are, are the actual errors not what's necessarily being filtered out into your own log file. Right. Uh, and I, I guess I've always I've always liked that story because it it also kind of represents a little bit what New Relic's all about. Yeah. Of course, those were the early days, but even now, um, the culture here, um, I don't know if you can tell or hear it in my voice, but you know I've been in software development for well over 25 years now. So yeah. um, I got a little bit of gray here, and <laughs> I've never been this excited about software development as I have cool. been since I've joined New Relic, and the reason is... Because of the culture we have here, it's it's not just a cool company with with a lot of money and with you know great you know you know great software which we do have, but it's the it's the way um, the company uh, cares about its employees and the way we care about uh, our customers. So, for instance, um, you know we're all pretty involved. We have a, an excellent tech support group that. Um, is very proactive and always looking at ways to make the things easier for the customer, but when things get kind of passed from them to you know the next level of support and it's a difficult issue that has to come to the to the actual teams, uh, we're very involved. We use Zendesk and you know I interact with customers all the time mm. through um, through our Zendesk interface. So it's not like us, you know, it's not like somebody can call calls in and then they they hear this, you know. Oh, we'll get back to you, you know, whatever. Right. It's you know, they can add a ticket right away. they're gonna they're gonna hear from us right away.. Um, and yeah, it, that whole pro, that whole process and that whole culture really is exciting. And um, Bob, tell us about pricing. Ah, pricing. yeah. so um, so first of all, um, you can download New Relic for free. So right away, let's say you're running in your own data center or just a developer working on your own box. You can download the agent and get a two-week um, pro license, basically a two-week trial for, uh, with all the features uh, for you to try out. And if you decide not to you know, pay for the pro, you can also use the standard or the uh, light version. The light version is free forever. You get a 30-minute window on your, on your data, and, and you don't get all, of, all the transaction traces and some of the other features, but, but you still can use the product forever, for, but you just be able to see 30 minutes. Um, the next step up from that is standard, which is uh, $24.99 a month per server, and then the next step up from that is pro, which is 120 um, dollars 120, dollars per month uh, per
0: server. This is not per app? I can I can monitor as many apps as I want? It's per server?
2: Yes, that's right. Okay. And
1: there's also so, uh, there's also an Azure offering that's in there?
2: Yeah, in fact, you just read my mind because I was about to go into that. So for Azure um, and for Rackspace and AWS and other environments, we provide uh, a different pricing model. So uh, you can get the standard product for free if you're with Rackspace or AWS or Azure. So that's absolutely free. For the pro version in Azure, you can get um, a a what they call a small uh, VM or or a shared website for eight dollars a month. Oh wow! So cool. And then it goes up to like forty dollars a month for additional servers and that sort of thing. So it's a it's a whole scale. Um, if you go to, um, I thought I'd, I'd sort of mention some links. Um, since this is a a podcast and people could maybe remember some of the links a little easier than actually Mm -hmm. Uh, and if they just go to newrelic.com slash azure then um, you can read all about our azure offerings uh, for both websites cloud services and vms great Um, awesome and there's also newrelic.com slash pricing for our general pricing bob thanks very much it sounds like great
1: stuff okay you're welcome thanks very much for having me all right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, PluralSec.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. com.